You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, we got a couple of housekeeping items. By all means. That we need to go over before we get started with the CME proper this week. We keep a clean house around here. First of all, item number one uh, on the agenda, someone sent us a goddamn microwave yeah. in, in the mail. Where is it? Well, uh, before we get into the... Uh, I don't like that there's not an easy answer to that question. The nitty-gritty particulars of where the microwave exists at this moment. Let's just take a moment to tip our caps to <laughs> the anonymous soul who sent that microwave through the U.S. mails all the way to our P.O. box. Uh, and when I opened the CME P.O. box and just pulled out, you know, they put those little cards in there that says you've got a package if they can't fit it in the P.O. box. It simply said, huge. <laughs> nice. Underlined several times. Uh, the ladies working behind the counter at the USPS were mystified as to what it might be. Uh, and then when I went, went back the next day to send out the, uh, the first prizes from the CME giveaway, I told them it was a microwave and their minds were blown. <laughs> they don't see a lot of that, huh? No, no. Uh, so yeah, we don't know who did it, which as an, as an aside, Ben, don't you think it's weird that you can anonymously send stuff through the mail through, uh, like Amazon? Do you think you're saying that we live in a glorious golden age where people can just mail each other anonymous microwaves? I think that this is a hell of a time to be alive. Anyway, if the, if the person who sent it wants to reveal themselves, uh, via email, I mean, probably we got to pay them back some way, right? Yeah, they're also just begging for it, basically, for me to start coming up in here being like, Chad, I can't believe that you don't even have an espresso maker. That's what right. kind of house is this? Yeah. yeah, how come neither of us have $1,500 custom-made fixed-wheel bicycles? Yeah. That's a real hole in our game. It's cold in here. Why don't you have a mink coat for me to borrow? That's See? A lot of questions could be asked. A lot of anonymous gifts could be mailed. Le leading me to the most important question, where the microwave at, homie? You know what? The microwave's going to find a good home, Ben. Uh, what the fuck, man? Just keep it in a corner so that when I come over here, maybe I want to warm up some taquitos. It's right there. Might go live on a farm. A lot of worthy causes out there today, today's society. You would not dare insult this act of kindness by just giving it away. I mean, the gift of the microwave does, uh, you know, while amazing and awesome. It does overlook certain facts about our original discussion regarding the lack of a microwave in this house. <laughs> that it does wasn't it accidental? That, yeah, that it's not accidental or that uh, I lack the means, you know, to go out and plunk down 50 bucks and buy myself a microwave. I just think... Especially now that we got the Patreon rolling, dude, we could have a stack of microwaves in here. <laughs> the wall of microwaves. If, if you would allow it, you mean? I mean, I just... It felt like somebody out there was trying to solve a problem. And then you stepped in and just created a, a new problem. You don't have to worry, my man. Whoever ends up with that microwave is going to appreciate it so much more than you ever could. Can you at least like give it to one of your neighbors so that that way, when I come over, if I need to use a microwave, I'll just pop next door. Now you're thinking. Now yeah. that's an idea. Okay. Or maybe we just uh, run an extension cord out the front door so you don't even have to come in the house. Ever. 
Well, I don't like where this is going. Just put a chair and a micro microphone out in the, the side yard there. This has taken a turn. All right, item number two, Ben. We rocketed past 350 patrons over at the Patreon. Rocketed past uh, it. Record time. Yeah. I was thinking that we would have some time to mentally prepare for this event. We're currently sitting at 367. Now, see, that is a double screw job because I was kind of hoping that we would go over 350 and then everyone would rejoice like, yay, Chad and Ben have to do the Pride FC drinking game challenge. And then we might dip down back under 350. Nope. But we just hit 350 and just kept like a rocket to the stars, man. Just just now, kept going. A couple of things we need to talk about. For one thing, there are some particulars to be worked out, such as which Pride event we're going to watch. I heard a lot of good suggestions on Twitter. I think for that, maybe what let's try to do is narrow it down to like four possibilities and then put up a poll. Okay. And we'll let the people decide which one we go with. All right. Uh the other one is exactly what rules we're going to use for a pride drinking game. Because there could be a lot of different triggers to drink during a pride drinking game. Yes, there could. And so at this point, I would like to invite all our listeners to send us via email their suggestions for pride drinking game rules. And then we'll choose the best of those, throw them in there. There's also the question of exactly how we're going to package this thing. Because a lot of people are asking for a live streaming option so that they can not only see what becomes of us while we are doing this pride drinking game, but also play along with the co-main event podcast, mm -hmm. which I think sounds like a fun idea. I looked into it. It seems like technically it is possible to do something like that. We got a lot of uh, the five W's to figure out here. Yeah. Right now, if we do a live stream, see, here's the thing. Everyone who's clamoring for this live stream knows that live streaming shit is not what we do. Right. Right. And that live streaming shit is generally kind of a, a clusterfuck. So if we do it, I don't want to hear word one when the stream fails, okay? I like how you went with when, when the stream fails. I mean, I'm, this isn't my first rodeo over on the internets. I'm familiar with how these things typically go. And yet you think that you can just say this and then people will be like, I was going to complain about the failed stream, but I won't because Chad said not to. They're still going to complain. They're still going to complain, but people ought to know that they made their own bed here, right? Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. But I agree with you that uh, the the sheer idea of the Pride FC drinking game challenge raises some interesting conundrums for how to accomplish it on the co-main event podcast, right? Right. Because, you, I mean, if you do just a regular audio podcast, for people who aren't queuing up and watching the Pride FC event, it might just be unintelligible nonsense. Right. Might or, be unintelligible, unintelligible nonsense either way. But this way, at I least... I can almost guarantee that it eventually will devolve into unintelligible nonsense. Well, we'll, we'll look into some, some streaming options here. Uh, and remember, if you want to play along and get in on this, and it's going to be a whole hell of a lot of fun, then you have to be uh, a patron of the Co-Main Event Podcast. It means you can go to patreon.com slash co-main event you get down with us. We had a new pay tier so that if you don't feel like you can sustain five whole dollars a month, there, there's options for you there. And if you feel like, you know, you really love this goddamn podcast and you want to give us $10 a month, you can do that too. In addition to that, there's probably going to be rewards coming, right? There are going to be rewards We're going to set up some kind of rewards tier. Uh, oh, before we move on, we know when we're going to do this though, That's right? right. One of the five W's has already been answered. Circle the date on your calendars. Friday, March 9th. Friday, March 9th. Good thing about that, no UFC event that weekend. So, so we don't have to worry can, about getting counter-programmed. Everybody can recover? Whatever they need to do, man. Whatever they need to do. And of course, that will be Friday evening, March 9th, in the one true time zone. 
By now, I hope you. By now, I hope you've taken the steps to hook up your special someone with some fine men's grooming products from Fulton and Rourke for Valentine's Day, or if you prefer, the sexiest of all holidays, President's Day. If you haven't, well, you messed up. But maybe you can get some clean lines and improved aromas in your life for March. If that sounds like something you might be interested in, just hustle over to FultonRourke.com and use the promo code CME at checkout to save fifteen percent on your first order. Ben. What kind of stuff do you recommend they pick up over there? Well, I recommend it all, Chad. For starters, Fulton & Rourke's face wash is back in stock better than ever, now with vitamin E tea tree extract. You could also try out their 2-in-1 shampoo and body wash, which is formulated using rosemary extract, vitamin B5, and caffeine to give it a uniquely invigorating fragrance while leaving your hair and skin looking and feeling good long after you stepped out of the shower. I will see those suggestions and raise you Fulton and Rourke's complete line of solid colognes, including Sterling, featuring notes of tobacco, leather, and vanilla. Like all Fulton and Rourke fragrances, it comes in a heavy-duty refillable metal container that will go anywhere from your gym bag to your pocket to your desk drawer at work. All this stuff is real easy to get in your hot little hands. Just go over to FultonandRourke.com, load up your cart with great stuff, and once again, enter the promo code CME at checkout for 15% off your first order. That's FultonandRourke.com, built for the way guys operate. We got music again this week from our guy Dion Rodriguez, a producer from Deltona, Florida. If you like what you hear from him on the podcast, you can check out more over at SoundCloud.com slash dbeat 7 And again, that's the word beats with a Z. As always, if you enjoy the Co-Main Event Podcast, you can do us a serious solid by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you listen to the show on. The stuff really does help our ranking and our rating, so lend us a hand if you got a few minutes and write us a review. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, see, the thing about Yoel Romero is if he went out and bought a replica belt and then started walking around bragging about being the UFC 187.7 pound champion. Would anybody have the guts to tell him that's not really a thing? And in round number two, what's this? Young fighters in the UFC we might have cause to get excited about? Cue the diverticulitis. And in round number three, Chris Cyborg makes the seamless transition from problem child to person you call when you need to save another of your crappy pay-per-views. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from international footballer Alexis Sanchez. Oh, hey, Manchester United player Alexis Sanchez. How about that? He writes, so Curtis the Razor Blades found a way to cut down the Super Samoan Mark Hunt and has been on a quiet little run of wins. At an infantile 26 years of age, he's still a toddler in the heavyweight terms. So how far can this guy go? Potential title contender with another win or two. Now see, Ben, there's probably going to be a recurring theme on today's co-main event podcast, which we will get into in earnest in round number two, when I think we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about uh, Tai Tuivasa and uh, Israel Adesanya. There you go. Did that without notes right off the top of my head. Nailed it. Uh, but we're going to spend some time today talking about these different guys who performed at UFC 221, all of whom are on the younger side and all of whom seem like uh, maybe they deserve to get a little bit more attention than we've been giving them up to this point. Uh, and I think in the wake of this victory over Mark Hunt, one of those guys is Curtis Blades, right? Yeah. First of all, can we give some credit to the chin of Curtis Blades? Because, man... He looked like he was headed for the Dark Lands. He sure did. Looked like he was headed straight for the land of wind and ghosts. Because you've seen this before, where Mark Hunt lands a couple clean shots on somebody, they get a little wobbly, and you think, all right, just one more, 
and uh, roll out the tweet saying he did while Mark Hunt turns his back and calmly strolls away. And then it just didn't happen. He collected himself enough. He got the takedown when he needed it and then just uh, stayed disciplined with that attack throughout the rest of the fight and managed to avoid that. Like, I don't, I couldn't tell. Like, is this a sign that maybe Mark Hunt finally, at like almost 44 years of age, is finally losing a little power? Or is Curtis Blades just that goddamn tough? It can be both things. That's true. Right? Like, it doesn't have to be just one. And I think maybe on the Curtis Blades end of things, we could point out as an example that even though he lost to Francis Ngannou in a fight that was Curtis Blades' debut in the UFC back in 2016, he lost to Francis Ngannou versus T- by TKO, but it was a doctor stoppage. Yeah, between rounds, right? So yeah, due to, like, swelling, I think, right? Or uh, I think it was swelling due to him getting punched in his face. But he didn't get <laughs> he didn't get knocked out by Francis Ngannou. Which is something. And yeah. to make it two rounds with Francis Ngannou is something. And then he goes out there against Mark Hunt, weathers some crazy shots, uh, and is able to fight a really smart and, and disciplined fight and get the unanimous decision win here. Now, Curtis Blaze lost that UFC debut to Francis Ngannou, Ben, but since then, like, technically he's on a five-fight win streak here. He had his win over Adam Milstead overturned into a no, no contest in February of, of last year because Curtis Blades tested positive for marijuana. Which is some bullshit. Right. So if you consider that to be still a win... I do. That's that's five wins in a row in the UFC heavyweight division. Obviously, Curtis Blades has a tremendous uh, amateur background in in amateur wrestling. Was a really high level wrestler. He's got he's got a chin on him. Uh, you know, I think he showed in this in this Mark Hunt fight. Not only is he resourceful, but he's got a really high fight IQ. He can go out there and execute the game plan. Uh, and as the emailer said, at 26 years old, Jesus, uh, just turned 26. Yeah. Oh, no, wait, it's. February 18th, so he's about to turn 27. Still. Still. As, like, a, as a heavyweight? basically still in utero. Yeah. In the heavyweight. Utero's damn zygote, man. So I, I agree. I think, like, Curtis Blades needs... He deserves to get more attention. I think that because of that Francis Ngannou loss in his debut, and because he's he's kind of a grinder, he's not going out there and destroying people like Ngannou does or knocking people out like Mark Hunt does. Maybe we have a tendency to overlook the guy. But at this point, all things considered, age, skills, performances in the octagon... Uh, it kind of seems like Curtis Blades has a really high ceiling in this division. Yeah, although last thing I'll say on it is that after you beat Mark Hunt in a co-main event of a pay-per-view, then that's when things might start to get serious as far as who you get matched up with next in, in the heavyweight division. Yeah, we should probably point out that aside from Mark Hunt, who you said at the beginning might be on the downside, uh, and Francis Ngannou a couple years ago, Curtis Blades hasn't necessarily fought the highest of the high-level competition. Alexi Olenek. Over there in the in the heavyweight division. Daniel Milinchuk. You know what I kind of liked about Curtis Blades this time around, Ben? What? Changed his look a little bit. Yeah? Had the, uh, the lightning bolt shaved in one side of his head, which that's a thing that another guy in the heavyweight division already does, but let's go with it. He had the beard shaped up a little bit. Like he had just, it looked like he had come straight from the barber. You know, maybe taking some of uh, some of Jim Rice's or Jim Ross's advice, going out there uh, with a little flattering look for himself. <laughs> you can't get a different low. We can't if the lightning bolt's taken. You can't go for something else shaved on the side of the head, like a star. How about a star pattern? I mean, I don't, I don't know. How about no. multiple stars? Not being a professional I'm, barber myself, a I don't galaxy. Know. I assume that the that there are other options beside the lightning bolt. But I mean, Curtis Blades went out there. And I would say looked more like a guy we would want to remember. 
than he has in, in past performances. Well, and his name is goddamn Curtis Razor Blades, man. So it shouldn't be that hard to get people's attention. Next question this week comes to us from Don A. He writes, Dundasso reigned supreme once again this weekend, culminating in Li, Li Jing Liang's committing the most blatant eye gouging in recent memory, uh, where this must be... While this must be bringing in memberships to the Dundasso Dojo, this is becoming just damn ridiculous. Are these fouls doing any damage to the sport, the viewership, or is the UFC just going to keep allowing it until someone loses a damn eye? Yeah, how does a sign-ups at the Dundasso Dojo after this? Through the roof. Yeah. We're going to have to hire a, a, another instructor, which is handy because I think we can get uh, Li Jing Liang. Yeah, the problem with the Dundasso Dojo is that they, they make you sign a contract, but if you break it, they can't help but respect that move. Won't even take you to collections over it. I mean, there might be some some extracurricular price you have to pay, though. Yeah, you're getting kicked in the balls. Uh, this was bad. This, this was, was terrible! And the referee's response to it was to just kind of reach down and tap uh, Li Jing Liang's uh, arm like a couple times as if like, Hey, uh, would you mind just kind of like getting your hand, which is now knuckle deep in the guy's eye? Would you mind just moving that if it's not too much trouble? Yeah, I think the technical term for that is ineffectually yes. tapping on Li Jing Liang's arm to try to suggest, lightly suggest that he ought to stop uh, trying to touch Jake Matthews's brain. Well, and then I think between rounds, right, uh, at least according to the broadcast team, told him that if he does it again, there'll be a point deduction. <laughs> Which, come on, man. This ought to have been an automatic disqualification, okay. right? That was going to be my next question. Is how you should, Because this is not... Your usual eye poke situation, which is guys standing there trading punches, somebody comes in, somebody else extends their hand, uh, try to check the progress, and you get poked in the eye. This is, and one of the reasons why it seems worse is because it seems more blatant that you're caught in a submission and you're reaching out, and you've got to be able to tell that you are poking a guy in the eye at that point to try to get yourself out of a submission. Now... It's always difficult to say, here's what would have happened if this other thing didn't happen, because you can't really know. But man, this seems as close to knowing as you can really get there. Yeah, and we, we've talked a little bit before on the podcast about how the rules in this sport are deceptively sort of hard to write and enforce. And I think that this uh, underscores a little bit of that in that, as you said, this is not just a normal eye poke. This is not like a John Jones style eye poke. This is a dude reaching up over the top of his head and digging two fingers into the eye socket of his opponent to try to get out of what might otherwise have been a fight ending choke. We've also talked a little bit about instant replay on the show. And, and I've talked a couple times about how I feel like instant replay is kind of deceptively difficult to implement in this sport because it brings up a lot of tricky questions about how you would use it. In this instance, motherfucker, go to the tape between rounds if you have to and see Li Jing Liang digging his hand into Jordan Matthews's or Jake Matthews's eye socket and disqualify the dude between rounds if you have to but this is just like egregious okay let's imagine the scenario where that happens they go to the end of the round the guys are sitting on the stool uh the referee i believe it was Steve Percival i'm not totally sure uh goes over there looks at it on replay and says yep he definitely used a foul to get out of a submission i'm calling it right here Waves his arms in the air, says this one is over. Jake Matthews wins by DQ. Do you feel like that's a satisfying outcome? No, it's the it's the exact opposite of a satisfying outcome. And to you know to make matters worse, you're on pay per view, right? People have paid to watch five fights on this thing. One of them ends. When was the second round that this happened? I believe so. Uh, due to a DQ, people are going to be mad. 
But at the same time, you have a fucking sport here, man. Like at some point, you have to have a rule that means something. I don't think it was Steve Percival, though. I think it was because I remember as oh, the okay. fight was happening and I was thinking. Mark Simpson? Yeah. Yeah. The bald guy. Uh, Steve Percival, by the way, looks like he runs the HVAC uh, business that probably sends Cyril Asker to your house to check on your heater if it goes out in the middle of winter. <laughs> Steve Percival's the like the kind of ball-breaking boss of that place. Oh, man. Old man Percival riding me pretty hard this week. Uh, let's talk a moment about Jake Matthews because he looked pretty incredible in this fight all the way around. Very, uh, very complete in terms of his skill set. Sharp in the striking, obviously good in the submission game. Might have finished the fight with that choke. Uh, had Li Jingliang not popped one of his eyeballs out and put it in his pocket for later. Uh, and uh, as an aside, no, he just no sold this eye thing, right? I know. Like, didn't Continues say a fucking no word to the referee about it. And, I and even afterwards, it's just like, hey, it's a fight and he's the moment things happen. You're like, things happen? Like, if he had been the, the dude fighting Dan Doherty in Deadwood, and he would have been like, well, hey, what are you going to do? Pulled my eye out and then crushed my skull with a piece of firewood. What, spoiler alert, by the way. What can you do? It happens. And it seemed like uh, Matthews's corner didn't know about the eye poke until between rounds. Like someone was trying to explain it to them. Uh, but, yeah, very professional, like almost too professional of a response from Jake Matthews here. Uh, though he looked great. And if we're going to talk about, you know, young guys that maybe should be getting a little bit more due. In the UFC, Jake Matthews might be one of those guys. He had a little bit of hype when he first came into the UFC just because he was so damn young at the time, and he remains only 23 years old. So uh, he really still embryonic in his in his development. Uh, he's he's three and four in his last seven. Uh, but at the same time, looked really good in this fight, seems to be kind of putting it all together. Uh, and is one of these guys, Ben, in his early 20s, who represents this current generation of fighters who are subtly but drastically different from any of the generations that have come before them like any of the previous iteration of ufc fighters in that uh they have been raised from a young age to just do mma all the way around their entire lives they didn't start as wrestlers and then have had to full uh, you know uh fill out their skill set from there so he's one of these guys that comes through the game with a complete understanding and ability to do mma and i feel like with uh jake matthews you're just starting to see that kind of all come together in the octagon. Yeah, he's also one of these guys, though, who the UFC seems to have slated him as like, well, he fights when you're in Australia. Other than that, they kind of just forget his name. You look at his his record, and I think he only has like one fight outside. Of, well, he has one in New Zealand, but then the other one, he has one in Las Vegas. Everything else is like, all right, well, we'll call you the couple times a year when we come to Australia. You got to kind of get off of that circuit if you're going to get to the next level, don't you? Yeah. And one of the interesting things that is going on with the UFC product right now is that we all seem kind of down on it. We're all talking about how we're in this run of really lackluster events right now to start out 2018. And there's issues of oversaturation continue to go on. And we're trying to figure out exactly what is happening with the UFC product. It's all happening in the face of a roster that continues to be a goddamn embarrassment of riches. Like you have close to 500, sometimes more than 500 uh, fighters under contract in the UFC and you've got so much talent all over the place that dudes like Jake Matthews who seem super good at fighting just kind of get lost in the shuffle and get relegated to these almost second tier event positions where like as you said he only fights in the southern hemisphere when you know the two or three times a year that the UFC makes the jaunt down there to Australia 
So like, that's weird to think about that, that like the product is arguably as bad as it's ever been at the same time when the roster of fighters uh, is like changing the game in terms of athleticism and ability and understanding of how the sport works. That's all. Move on. Next question this week comes to us from the Cheeseburger Walrus. Of course. He writes, Tyson Pedro pulls off one of the sexiest Kimura sweeps I've ever seen in my life. Not now, but eventually he seems like he could be a solid contender at 205. Thoughts on the submission, and can we use the CME Universe's powers to come up with a solid nickname for the guy? Okay. First of all, before we get into this, uh, I thought, you know, good performance by Tyson Pedro, and he comes off as like a super fun, likable guy in the post-fight interview and everything. But before we get too carried away by saying, like, hey, look at this great submission win he pulled off, let's also acknowledge who he did it against. Because Saperbeck Safarov... Looks not like the a- guy who would come in the truck with Cyril Lascaire. <laughs> they're they're he, gonna check out the furnace lines, make sure you don't have any dirt in he's there. He's definitely coming in the same truck as Cyril Lascaire to this event. Because <laughs> there were two, like, fights on this card where, or on the main card, where you can look at it and be like, okay... Um, here's a like three to one favorite who's a local guy who is clearly here to win and get the crowd pumped up against a guy who's clearly here to lose. And the guys here to lose were obviously Safarov and Cyril Asker, and they they fulfilled those roles, fulfilled them very well. Everybody got what they wanted out of those things, but they it's not like it was a huge surprise to see those fights go the way they did. No, I don't think so. I I still think Tyson Pedro though, twenty six years old, continuing the theme of this week's episode. Uh, he could be a capital G guy in sure. this light heavyweight division, but then again, almost anybody who has a three and one record in the UFC, uh, could do that. And, and, you know, again, he's one of these guys who hasn't necessarily fought the top level, uh, competition in the division. Uh, he's got wins over Khalil Roundtree and Paul Craig, and then the unanimous decision loss to the bricklayer, Alir Latifi. Uh, that, but this is, you know, that's not a bad no, run. There. I mean, he's the kind of guy that you see him do this. Uh, you pull off that awesome, the rare Kimura submission, which you don't see a ton uh, in mixed martial arts these days. You like he, he's the kind of guy that is young enough and seems talented enough that you do want to see more of of Tyson Pedro moving forward, and especially in this division that needs almost anything that that it can get to help it out. Like, yeah, well, I'll take him. Absolutely, give me Tyson Pedro as a light heavyweight. Great. Though you do wonder, is he going to end up on doing the same thing where you just he's the guy that you call when you come to Australia and you need somebody for the guard? I don't know if the the difference is I don't know if the UFC can afford to do that at light heavyweight just because it's so thin. If you have anybody who people care about anybody at all, then you're going to need to put that person into action more. All right, last question this week comes to us from Kevin Wimmer. He writes, "Oh yeah, Kevin Wimmer." You don't know Kevin Wimmer? No, huh? I slipped my mind right off the top of my head. You don't? Well, you want to guess which uh, English football club he plays for? He, does he play for our guys? Doesn't play for our guys, Crystal Palace. Oh, He's not a Palace man. Come must, on, it must be Broadmouth then. <laughs> Hammerfeld. Does he play for Hammerfeld? Are, what? Stoke City. White Whistle Lane. You know what? I, I was amazed by, and continue to be amazed by, ever since getting into becoming a real Crystal Palace guy, real Palace fan. Uh huh. Um, you know. Like London has like five or six goddamn teams. It's a big town. How the what? What the hell, man? How do they do that? Uh, well, I think for starters, they they have an eager fan base there. A bunch of shit eating wild men for footy. Spread it around. Spread it around more. Now, I don't know, man. Crystal Palace is in London, right? Crystal Palace is in London. Great. There we go. That's all I need to know. 
Ah, uh, Kevin Wimmer, K-Dubs. With all the well-deserved hype of the stacked UFC 221 pay-per-view, uh, along with the highly anticipated UFC Fight Night 126, Cowboy versus Medeiros. That feels like some sarcasm is going yeah, some on. Some of that English wit. Uh, He's no, Austrian, actually. Whatever. Uh, it's no wonder we've forgotten that what's going on on Friday. That's right. From the Mohegan Sun Arena in Uncasville, Connecticut, it's Bellator 194, a.k.a. Mitrio Nelson 2, a.k.a. the next round of the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix. I don't have a true question here. Well, thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for letting me get a paragraph deep in your question. But since I doubt you'll do a full round on this, and what do you guys think the importance of this fight is in the grand scheme of things? Please discuss. That's a savvy use of some question time there by Kevin Wimmer. Uh, I, well, I mean, I think it's sort of deceptively important in this bracket, right? Because I think you you would have to tab Matt Mitrione and or Roy Nelson as two of the potential favorites to win this whole damn thing if if they could stay healthy, right? Right. I mean, I mean I, obviously only one of them moves on from this fight, but like the winner of this fight stands a good chance of, well, you, of winning this. First of all, nothing's obvious no, about this true. Bellator tournament. That's true. Don't act like Roy Nelson couldn't lose this fight and then somehow end up just plopping back there in time for the finals. Uh, I believe Roy Nelson also is the oldest person in this field so far. Wow, really? Yeah. There are some old people in this field. And Roy Nelson is the oldest? He's 41. Okay. I think Fedor is 40. Um I could be wrong about that. Uh, Matt Mitrione, though, kind of your your favorite to win it when you look at it from a lot of different angles. If he comes out of the, if he goes out there, knocks out Roy Nelson, and uh, can kind of you know for one thing, uh, avenge that loss, then I think you really do have to start looking at this as Matt Mitrione's tournament to lose, don't you? It's almost like this Roy Nelson fight could be the most difficult one in the draw for Matt Mitrione, depending on how things work out. Uh, you know, deceptively good little card here for Bellator, Bellator 194. Heather Hardy, uh, in women's flyweight action, taking on, uh, Anna Uliton, who I believe is, is she the woman that they got into the confrontation over there at the, at the weigh-in? Possibly. I don't know. Could be. Uh, Liam McGeary, remember him? Yeah. Remember when Liam McGeary was a thing? Uh, Patricky Friere. Gotta have a Pitbull Brothers. Brothers. Gotta have one of those. And then you got Matt Matrione and, uh, Big Country at the main event, so... If you're it's hanging out this Friday, February the 16th, with nothing else to do, uh, check out the uh, Paramount Network. This thing's probably coming on right after uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I'm just okay. going to guess. That's not a bad guess. Are then. they still doing cops? Are they yeah, still no, cops that's marathons what I was say. over then on we'll, the Paramount Network? I think we roll straight into cops uh, after this is over. So really, when we rebranded as the Paramount Network, we didn't get too crazy with... Uh, with juggling the lineup. I don't know. I, I haven't really checked out exactly what all is on the lineup lately. Remember when they had that show about the great warriors through time fighting each other? And they would put together... Those, Deadliest Warrior? Yeah, Deadliest Warrior. That was a good show. They used to was put, it? Put together those... Uh, was it, though? Those like extremely lifelike organ tors- human torsos and show you what an axe would do. Yeah, okay. Well, there's a certain kind of I mean, pleasure I watching know, that show. I don't know if I needed a whole lot of convincing to know that I didn't want to get hit in the torso with Who would win a between a pirate and a knight? Come on, Ben. It's right well, up your alley. I'm looking at the Paramount Network lineup right now. I see a lot of two and a half men. I see some Friends reruns. Uh, and then you get into the nine o'clock hour. Cops. Well, they know when people want to watch Cops. Bad boys, bad boys. You hear that and you just you feel it, don't you? Was very. I thought Cops was actually coming on, just hearing you sing that. Yeah. It was very true to Your life. Your heart rate spiked. 
That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Uh, while you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, a vintage performance from the Soldier of Dog this past weekend at UFC 221, really in all ways. I don't know exactly where you want to start, but we could go anywhere from missing weight to uh, provoking a weird, not necessarily confrontation, but let's just say almost like a weird anti-exchange with Luke Rockhold in the cage after this thing was over. Uncomfortable. And vintage. Yoel Romero. That's right. Uh, as uh, my man Kevin Sesha on Twitter pointed out, one of my favorite uh, funny Twitter accounts, by the way, at Kevin Sesha, uh, one thing you learned from this weekend is that if Yoel Romero is kissing you and talking to you really close, it means something terrible has just happened to you. All right, let's start at the beginning here. Yoel Romero misses weight for this thing at 187.7, but at the same time is a late replacement here uh, in a pay-per-view event that takes place overseas. Um, how much of the wind does it take out of the sails of the win for Yoel Romero here that he missed weight? And uh, are we just going to kind of pretend that he didn't miss weight and go ahead and set him up with a rematch against Robert Knuckles, even though uh, Yoel Romero himself was not eligible to win the uh, middleweight interim title here? Yeah, I mean... I don't really care too much about the interim title just because it's an interim title. And I can understand him saying, hey, you know, normally the weight is not that big a deal. But since I had to do this on relatively short notice and I was already planning for uh, a fight at a slightly later date, that's what led to it. Still, you know, it's not great for you because it just puts that little asterisk next to the win and you you never want to do that. Uh, But it seems like the UFC pretty much immediately decided that it was going to go ahead and just do what you would have done if he had won the interim title and act like it wasn't a thing. Because if you if you say, hey, he doesn't get to have the interim belt, but his next fight will be you know, most likely challenging the actual middleweight champion, well, then so, that's basically the same thing. Like he, You don't get to put two belts on the poster, which I know is very important to you, Chad. But other than that, it, and you have to give up 30% of your purse to the other guy, which you're not crazy about, but as far as like how it affects the arc of your career, it seems like not at all. Yeah. Yeah. So effectively no consequences really, except maybe he's not, uh, you know, he had to give some money to Luke Rockhold and maybe he's not eligible to win the post fight bonus. Should have mentioned this in the uh, earlier portion of the show, Ben, but how about Lee Jing Liang cruising in here to scoop up 50,000 extra dollars yeah. for a fight of the night along with Jake Matthews. That'll learn him. Pays right? to cheat. 
That'll teach him a lesson. Anyway, uh, you know what? It looked like Luke Rockhold was going to have the fight that we expected coming into this, that he was just going to kind of chip away at Yoel Romero um, and avoid the the explosive big shots from Yoel Romero and, and kind of either get a late stoppage or cruise to a unanimous decision victory here, uh, recapture some version of the 185-pound title. And then Yoel Romero did that Yoel Romero thing where all of a sudden, fight's over. Yep. In fact, as I was watching the thing go down, I was, you know, I had my laptop on my lap. I just looked up and I was like, oh, this thing's over. Fight's over. Just punched him twice. We're done. And the second one. God, the second one. I hope that there was a doctor on hand to, like, reattach Luke Rockhold's head at C1 uh, and then give him some of those Frankenstein stitches around his throat because uh, that was one of the hardest damn punches I've ever seen in my life. Well, and it's like the worst situation you can find yourself in against UL Romero is... Like, woozy, not immediately capable of defending yourself. You're on the ground, and you, you're posting both hands on the mat, so you don't have anything to protect your face with, and he's standing right there. Yeah, that's, that was, that's a nightmare. Like, the moment that you knew Luke Rockhold was really hurt and that this thing was probably over was after he hit the ground, and he did that thing that guys often do when, they, when their brain just got rattled, in that he kind of looked like he was like, oh, I've fallen over. I will stand up, but I will not protect my face in yeah. the process. Like that part of the uh, of the situation escaped him until Yoel Romero blasted him right in the jaw with that. Well, that and shot. it wasn't necessarily a didn't look like a devastating punch that put him down, but again, that power that Romero has, you know, it seemed like you're t- you talk about him trying to chip away at Yoel Romero, and it you looked like a, like a moment maybe I want to say at the end of the second round where. It seemed like you could see Rockhold losing confidence in his ability to to hurt Yoel Romero. And you couldn't really keep him from coming forward. And you can't really maintain any like sustained forward pressure and offense of your own against him. Uh, that, I think, starts to put you in a really vulnerable spot when you just you can't back the guy up. You can't uh, dictate anything about the, the distance at which the fight takes place. And the next thing you know... He's in too close to you, and he, he throws that hook over your right hand, and you, you're putting your hands on the ground and figuring out uh, whether your head's still attached at the end. Then, to make it worse, once you get up and you're not totally sure where you are, Yuel Romero wants to have a deep philosophical conversation about six inches from your face. And when that happened, and Luke Rockhold clearly disappointed, he's not he doesn't necessarily want to even deal with Yuel Romero at that moment. Yeah, maybe get Yuel Romero out of there. Maybe he doesn't even know uh, where he is exactly. Uh, and this, it was kind of like you remembered that this card was in Australia, right? Because if this happened in Vegas, I don't necessarily know that they would let Yoel Romero get all up in Luke Rockhold's business at that moment. But the look that Luke Rockhold gives kind of over his shoulder, yeah. like, is someone going to save me <laughs> from this? Yeah. Is this okay what he's doing? I'm not a body language expert, but when he is pressing himself as flat against the cage as he possibly can, reaching out, putting both his hands on the top of the cage, and looking over his shoulder as far back as his head will go. I believe that is the body language international signal for come get your boy. <laughs> he was not at all interested in whatever this conversation is that you Romero is trying to have him. He's trying to kiss him on the cheek and everything. And you're just like, man, go celebrate somewhere else, please. This leaves Luke Rockhold in kind of an interesting place, though, doesn't it? 33 years old, the former champion. All three of his UFC losses uh, have come by knockout and in, in kind of, uh, you know, one one and done situations like Vitor Belfort, 
back in May of 2013 during the time that Vitor Belfort uh, was turning it up to 12 uh, in <laughs> yeah. terms of his testosterone ingestion. Bef- yeah, back when he was on the, the real TRT and not the true revival therapy. Uh, and then Michael Bisping at UFC 199, obviously in a fight we all expected Luke Rockhold to win. And then at UFC 221 against Yoel Romero in a fight Luke Rockhold, I think, was was probably on his way to winning. He just gets blasted in the face. So like you mentioned, it appearing as though as this fight went on, Luke Rockhold maybe began to doubt a little bit uh, in his game plan or what he, if he was getting it done, whether or not you know that he had the right thing going on here. What do you think 33-year-old Luke Rockhold says to himself in the wake of, of this loss uh, and in the wake of, of all three of these losses, just because knowing what I know about professional fighters, I'm I'm kind of guessing that Luke Rockhold is kind of like, well, I just got caught. Yeah. I was about to win all of these fights, and I just got caught. But you'll notice before this fight even, he was talking about moving up to light heavyweight. Mm-hmm. He said the weight cut was getting tougher and that he felt like that division you know, might be a little bit more open these days with John Jones not in it. Now... You know, just in terms of like looking at where you fit on the pecking order, I can see how light heavyweight might be a more attractive option to you. The thing that would concern me is that Luke Rockhold has looked a little too hittable and has not stood up to the power well, even at middleweight. I mean, even somebody like Michael Bisping knocks you out and he's not knocking out anybody, especially in that kind of one punch fashion. That makes you a little bit concerned about how he would do at light heavyweight, no? Yeah, it kind of does. And like, you know, one of the things that he really has going for himself at 185 pounds is being kind of big at that weight and being very rangy and long. And he moves around the cage well. Uh, and if he manages to keep the fight at kicking distance, he can strike you in a way that, you know, not a lot of middleweights can can strike him back. Uh, and so moving up to light heavyweight, you think he probably loses some of that um, unless he is able to really uh you know kind of widen out the frame like become a little bit more muscular have a little bit more uh size i don't know that he stands up with a lot of of the really really big light heavyweights and just by way of example john jones for instance like john jones presents all the problems for luke rockhold that rockhold like usually presents to middleweights so it would be interesting to see how he would do in a scenario where like he's on the other side of that of that coin how much do you think that the UFC is disappointed with this result? Because now it pretty much puts you in a situation where you got to run it back. Romero versus Whitaker, not exactly a barn burner of a matchup since we already saw it last summer. I mean, it's a good fight, and it will be a good fight again if that's what they end up having to do. And yet, we did just see it in July. Don't you think that the UFC would have rather come out of this with Luke Rockhold getting a win over Yoel Romero, and then you have this fresh matchup to make with Rockhold having a head of steam against your boy Bobby Knuckles. Yeah, probably a little bit. Like, I think it's not ideal to have to do the rematch. Maybe Luke Rockhold is a little bit of a, of a better option there against uh, Robert Whitaker. But at the same time, like, I don't know. You know, it, it's not like Luke Rockhold and Bobby Knuckles were going to break the bank on a, on a pay-per-view anyway. I don't know how much of the audience you necessarily lose uh, by by putting a kind of a re-energized, still totally terrifying Yoel Romero out there against Robert Whitaker. Like, if anything, we joke about the interim title, right, about how it doesn't mean anything, but it seems like maybe one of the bigger losses here would be if Robert Whitaker is not able to return to action, uh, you know, as soon as they would like, because if the delay stretches on and on, at least if you had Luke Rockhold out there, you could say you still had an interim champion. With Yoel Romero, he's just, you know, sort of like officially the number one contender you can put him in an, an additional matchup at 185 pounds but like um i don't know if that if if 
you lose any of this kind of sparkle on another matchup if if you can't make it for the interim title. But he's got that 187.7 belt. What's that, like light cruiserweight? Yeah, I'm a super middleweight. Yeah. You look around the 187.7 pound division, I don't know who's out there to stack up with you all, Romero. No. The list of contenders just is not, doesn't offer you much. No, it does not. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, I know we're going to end up talking a little bit more about uh, Tayatui Vasa in the uh, second round, but this man went out there, won a fight, and then shoved beer out of a shoe. Yes. Which... I later come to find out is a thing down in Australia, at least. You know what they call it? Uh, chugging beer out of a shoe. They call it a shoey. Okay, I was close. Yeah. I was going to say footy. Are you fucking kidding me? Any situation pretty much that you encounter where somebody gives you a beer, whatever receptacle it originally comes in is preferable to a shoe that's true that's true doesn't matter how it arrives to you somebody hands you a beer they must have handed it to you in some kind of receptacle and then you're going to go and you're going to put it into a shoe in order to drink it i guess just to prove that you don't give a fuck and that you can't even think through your decisions far enough to think about wait do i have to put the shoe back on my foot because it's all wet now and that's not going to be a whole lot of fun for the rest of the night you fucking kidding me? How did this even become a thing? And how did it go on without those of us in this hemisphere really finding out about it? Wait a second. So in the dynamic of the beer being drunk out of the shoe, Shoey. the bad decision-making that you are going to seize on is the guy who pours the beer into the shoe? Well, that's... Not the stranger who drinks the beer out of some dude's shoe? You, you got to start with the first bad decision that sets off all the others. Cause I can so you're more worried about the guy who's going to have a wet foot for the rest of the night. I wouldn't say I'm more worried about that. I'm just saying that lets you know what level the decision-making is happening on. Because, first of all, seeing the way Ty Tuivasa took down that chewy. Not his first chewy. Not his first chewy. Might not even have been his first beer, if I'm being perfectly honest. I think he might, might not have been his first chewy of the night. I think he might have done this before. I mean, that thing... Just went straight down there, and then he uses his Reebok fight kit to, to wipe his mouth, and he's off to the showers. Uh, you know, not a big deal for him. Meanwhile, whoever has to put that Adidas back on his foot is going to be feeling it. You know, maybe 15, 20 minutes later, you're thinking, you know what? Man, I could have just let him have the plastic cup. That would have been cool, too. Still on the side of the guy who pours the beer into his shoe. That's unbelievable. You're fucking kidding me. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, uh, so here's how it goes this week. First, Floyd Mayweather sends a tweet or maybe an Instagram post, who knows, of a photoshopped picture that appears to show him elbowing Conor McGregor in the face during a mythical mixed martial arts fight. Okay. Conor McGregor responds with his own shot of him elbowing, I believe it was Nate Diaz, during one of their fights. All right. You think we might be done there, but no. Oh. Nate Diaz follows this thing up with a third social media post showing him mounted and striking Conor McGregor uh, with a caption that says something like a real kill in a real war. Something like that. I, I don't have it in front of me, but are you fucking kidding me? You guys are supposed to be like real life, real world tough guys. And we're out here with a string of social media burns involving photoshops and clever cut lines Photos you pulled out of the archive. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back. Or round number one. I'm sorry. We'll be right back with round number two.
So, Chad, it was kind of a good night for optimism about the future at UFC 221, which I did not expect to really say coming into this event that beforehand all the talk was about how it was definitely not worth $65 and would have made for an awesome UFC fight night event. But then you look on there and you have middleweight kickboxing sensation Israel Adesanya. Uh, he goes out there and he's in another one of these fights that seems like it was made worth a a purpose in mind. He fights Rob Wilkinson. He's about a three to one favorite going into this. People are really excited about him with good reason. When you see some of the man's kickboxing highlights, he's a whole lot of fun to watch and he can do some really spectacular things when he can stand there and punch and kick you. And the question is with MMA, is he going to be able to do that? He's been able to do it in pretty much every fight so far. He's undefeated as a professional. He goes out here after a kind of slow first round. Then he takes Rob Wilkinson apart uh, also cuts a killer promo about how he's the new dog on the yard pissing all over the cage. Even mimes an act of public urination, Chad, just in case you're not getting the whole milieu. Hold on. Are we uh, are we featuring him miming an act of public urination among the positives of the past weekend? Sure. Sure okay, we are. I just wanted to be clear about that. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then you've got the aforementioned Tai Tuivasa going out there, just absolutely wrecking Surreal Asker, who was put on the card to get wrecked again. But, you know... Still does it. Looks like just a a big, athletic, violent man. Former uh, professional rugby player. Also seems like uh, a gregarious dude who likes to party. Seems like these are the kind of young fighters that people can get behind. You know, you got a young, exciting middleweight. You got a young, exciting heavyweight. Seems like this is something to build on for the future. Uh, My question is, will that building be actually taking place? Or is everybody just going to forget it as we roll right into... Cerrone versus Medeiros, because the UFC's schedule, it seems like, leaves them just no time or even interest, apparently, in promoting these guys. You didn't even hear much about him from the UFC before the fight. Yeah, well, I think you got a chance with Israel Adesanya, right? He's, he seems to be a guy that, at least leading up to this event, grabbed the attention, the consciousness of the hardcore fan. And, like, his debut was certainly uh, highly anticipated. You know, like you said, the the kickboxing highlight videos and the... The previous MMA fights, uh, most specifically his win over Melvin Gallard, are, are available online. And you could go watch him and you could see that this guy has something that seems special that he's going to bring to the cage. And especially at that 185-pound division, which is really a mess uh, at the moment, you could do a lot worse than having a 28-year-old murderer show up and just start picking people apart with his world-class kickboxing skills. Uh, um, you know, in, the, in Israel Adesanya's defense and like maybe... Uh, maybe I'm just a little bit too bullish on the guy, on the guy, but it seems like uh, he at least has enough ground skills to get up off the mat, or at least he did against Rob Wilkinson. Uh, he's not one-dimensional. If anything, like he reminded me of a weird mashup between Anderson Silva and John Jones. Not that he will reach those wow. heights or anything wow. like that. You just you uh, get but your just, bingo cards out for overhyped bingo. Uh, but just like in the effortlessness that he did stuff like, you know, floating over to, to get the top position when Wilkinson tries to take him down and stuff like that uh, was reminiscent of some of the stuff that we've seen John Jones do. And, of course, he has the, the high-level kickboxing skills. So, like, if you wanted to do it, I think Israel Adesanya has a real, uh, you know, real potential to be a, a something of a star uh, if for this company. The same thing is true with with uh, with Tai Tuivasa, but at the same time, I think you have the same concerns there that you had with with Jake Matthews and with Tyson Pedro a little bit. Like, does he wind up being one of these guys who's like a big 
attraction down under, but, but like, you know, gets kind of relegated to that circuit, if you will, uh, at heavyweight, obviously he has a good opportunity to fight his way out of that standing, but at the same time, uh, he seems to fit that market so well, like, are you just going to have him be, you know, Australian Commonwealth champion or whatever? Also, though, he is a 24 year old heavyweight, which I'm, I'm doing my MMA heavyweight math. That means he technically doesn't exist yet. He's still, he is, his parents are still, uh, in the courtship phase. Like that's, that's how young a heavyweight he is. Uh, you know what I liked about him? He's out there flashing the W for what I can only assume was West Sydney, right? Isn't he claiming West Sydney, Australia? Okay. I'll take your word for uh, it. He has a tattoo on the inside of his lip, which I thought that, uh, only our buddy Lando was out here doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. But uh, here's my question for our Australian listenership. What does FTA mean? Because that's what the tattoo says. Tai Tuivasa was shouting it out on the mic, FTA. And then I look at his uh, bio and it says he is from the area of West Sydney, Australia. Is it possible that FTA means from the area? Because that's kind of awesome. <laughs> what, Really? That is awesome. If it's not, I want to know what that means. So I'm just a dummy from Montana. Any of the locals down there in Australia, just let us know. See, maybe it is because of our buddy Lando and his inside of the lip tattoo. But when I see FT, any other letter after that, I assume it means fuck the whoever the A stands for. Right. Well, I mean, that's another... That's another option. But maybe that's just a Montana thing that would make absolutely no sense to people from the area of Sydney, Australia. Do you get a young Mark Hunt vibe off Ty Tuivasa? Because I kind of do. Huh. Okay. Same part of the world. Same sort of like devil may care attitude about throwing them bungalows. He seems a little just more enthusiastic about everything than Mark Hunt Well, does. like a young Mark Hunt. Okay. Mark Hunt before, uh, before the world had kind of turned against him. I don't know if you saw any of Mark Hunt's Instagram videos uh, from the aftermath of this fight event, but it's basically... Uh, Mark Hunt, Tyson Pedro, and Tai Tuivasa in a devolving scene as like day turns to night and they're partying in a nightclub. And it seems like basically they just took over the stage of this nightclub to do whatever they want and were some reason, for some reason given microphones. And uh, it's, it's a scene, man. You, you feel this is a, a sign that you know you're getting older because I'm watching this and I really uh, am putting myself in Mark Hunt's shoes. You know, these other these young fighters are just one in the UFC and they're partying it up and they're taking off their shirts and everything. And I know a part of Mark Hunt is thinking about getting to bed at a reasonable time. I know it. Well, the kids are going to wake up early over at Mark Hunt's house, <laughs> yeah. right? Like they're, And they're not going to care how hungover nope. Daddy Mark Hunt is. Nope, not at all. So there's, uh, that's a concern right there. The thing I worry about with when it, you look at stuff like this where you're like, okay, a couple new guys on the radar here for the UFC. Um, and... I didn't see the UFC do a ton of promotion for anybody, really, before this fight card. It seems like the UFC is just kind of in, when it comes to promoting these events, they're in a paint-by-numbers kind of mode, where we're going to hype up the main event, uh, try to convince you that the, the main event is everything, uh, that it's for some kind of a belt, and that it itself is worth $65, and then there'll be some other fights, which is a departure from how the UFC used to do this, when it used to sell you, you know, you're paying for this whole main card, and that's... Its value is in the aggregate. And then also being able to kind of promote people at various stages of their careers. And now it seems like, I don't know if it's just because there's so much going on 
and the UFC can't really focus on any one person for very long because the attention moves on, the, the news cycle moves on. We talked about this a little bit before where you had somebody like Gregor Gillespie who goes out there, wins a good fight, and you're like, okay, here's this guy who is all about fishing, which is a unique thing, and he's undefeated and has an exciting style. Why does the, the UFC not try to focus people's attention there more? Or a guy like Kamaru Usman where you're going out of your way to bury the guy. And it's like – I keep seeing Dana White pop up and stuff. I see him on Pawn Stars dropping $69,000 on the weapons room that he's building for his house, uh, which, no, that's totally not an evil supervillain thing to do at all. Uh, we saw him, we talked about that Esquire Modelo ad that he's in, and it's like, okay, you clearly have the ability to reach out there in these different avenues and get a little UFC spotlight on people. Why aren't you getting it on people who we might conceivably be paying to see fight someday? Yeah, and I, you know, in some ways, we're rerunning the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago about how there are a lot of these sort of up and coming stars in the UFC that would give the company the opportunity to uh, market to different groups, right? And in the case of both Israel Adesanya and Tai Tuivasa, I think that it's kind of instructive also to point out that the last, you know, generally speaking, when the UFC has had huge pay per view draws, at least part of it is because those pay per view draws have. Uh, interested fan bases behind them, right? George St. Pierre was a huge pay-per-view draw because the Canadian fans were uh, over the moon for the guy. Conor McGregor is a huge pay-per-view draw because in part the people of Ireland show up in droves and tear down whatever city he's fighting in. Uh, you know, Brock Lesnar had the rednecks. Uh, that was a joke, by the way. I'm just going to no-sell that one over there, though. <laughs> I slipped that one right by you. I don't know if it is a joke is the problem. No, it's funny because it's true. But with a guy like Tai Tuivasa, like, couldn't you conceivably have the country of Australia kind of buy into him as a big happy-go-lucky guy who knocks people out? Maybe as, like, uh, the opening act for Robert Whitaker, who is already your 185-pound champion? It seems like if you wanted to, like, you could do some stuff with these guys, many of which... You know, like a Francis Ngannou, like an Israel Adesanya, uh, may appeal to groups of people that don't necessarily currently make up your core audience, which I think might be a good idea for the UFC right now. Yeah, yeah. especially if you're looking with an eye to the future and not just to, like, when's the next pay-per-view that we can try to hustle up some cheap money on. Uh, if, I, if you had to bet money, Ben, if I gave you $100 but you can't spend it on Red Bulls. Ben's drinking a Red Bull this week. If that tells you guys anything. There it is. Uh, you got to either invest it in Israel Adesanya or tie to Ivasa for the rest of their careers. Uh, who do you think has the better, the better future, the better career? Oh man, that is tough because there's a few different factors. There's I have to lot, weigh here. There are many different factors at, at, at foot. Uh, I mean, for one thing, Israel Adesanya seems like really exciting fire fighter and skill wise seems to have a whole lot more going on, and yet he's in a division where you have to have a whole lot more going on. You can get a lot farther with a lot less at heavyweight. Uh, so that is a concern. I guess, and I don't feel good saying this, I guess I would invest it in Taito Ivasa, even though I feel like Israel Adesanya, obviously the better fighter. It's just that, especially at middleweight, I think that... Uh, it's only a matter of time for somebody who takes you down and, and grinds you out there. It seems weird to me that Israel Adesanya and Yoel Romero are in the same weight class. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, not technically. Technically, Yoel Romero is up there at super middleweight. Yeah. But, you know, in theory. Yeah, Jesus. I don't even want to think about that. Um, but I guess you would 
think that the USC probably appreciates what they have in him enough to keep him away from too many takedown artists, right? The old Conor McGregor yeah. fight path. That's right. Probably be pretty smart. Put him in there with these hitters. Uh, if you can get some of these hitters to take the fights. And then, you know, I think personality-wise, he's going to attract a whole lot of attention. Um, but then I also just think that the way heavyweight is, a big young guy who goes out there, throws them bungalows super hard, he could get three or four fights in before you even find out, before he even really is tested to see where he can get. And also, as a heavyweight, the way the market is, if I'm investing my money and looking for a return on investment he could very easily fight his way into big money way sooner than just a really talented middleweight could. Ty Tuivasa may also be headlining fights in the middleweight division 15 years from now, or heavyweight division, I'm sorry. But, like, he'll be, uh, you know, he'll, he'll just be hitting his stride 15 years from now. I mean, now. or he's going to have one too many shoeys at the after party and ride a motorcycle through a plate glass window, and then, you know, next thing you know, you don't hear from him for two years. Yeah, I'd be worried about the risk of infection, but maybe the alcohol kills it. I don't know. Drinking beer out of some guy's shoe. Like, I'm not saying it's a good idea. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, UFC 222 has risen from the ashes, which is lucky because it takes place just a few weeks from now on March 3rd at T-Mobile Arena in Paradise, Nevada. March 3rd? That's only six days before the CME Pride FC drinking challenge. Better be a good one because this will be the last UFC pay-per-view you and I will live to see. Well, so there's that. remember us as heroes. We thought we were going to get Max Holloway against Frankie Edgar. We had an outside shot at getting TJ Dillashaw versus Cody Garbrandt on this card and or Demetrius Johnson on this card. What we end up with is Chris Cyborg Justino defending her women's featherweight title against Yana Kunitskaya. And we get a featherweight fight against Frank or featuring Frankie Edgar against T-City Brian Ortega, which was one that was uh, bandied about last week and obviously one that splits my allegiances right down the middle. Let's start talking about Chris Cyborg, Ben. Uh, as I said during the intro part of the show, it seems like she has made a seamless and quick transition from being a person that the UFC hates to negotiate with to now being a person that they can call when they need someone to save UFC 222. Uh, can we make anything of that? Or is this just kind of a right place, right time thing uh, for Christian Justino? Well, it's weird, right? Because what we were talking about before was going to be Cyborg versus Amanda Nunes, right? Like, do we decide how we're saying Amanda Nunes as Nunes? Go with your heart, man. I think it's probably the lioness. The lioness. Yeah, just there you go. Uh, And I don't know, negotiations over that one, kind of tricky. You make this fight in the meantime to save a fight card. The message it sends me is, well, Cyborg's just going to roll over this person. And so then we'll resume talks about this other fight at a later date. It does not suggest to me that you expect this to be a serious challenge for Cyborg. It feels like this is just, all right. Cyborg's going to go smash. You guys like that, don't you? All right. That's our Band-Aid for UFC 222. Also, we're talking about the UFC's problem sometimes promoting uh, different fighters. Did you see Dana White on state-run TV talking about uh, the fight that was made for this event? When all he does is he says, 
Okay, no, we decided what we're going to do for USC 222. It's going to be Chris Cyborg versus, and then he gives a little like smirk and like looks off to the side and then makes a like a show of how he is pronouncing Yana Kunitskaya as if he's very like tickled that he was able to pronounce it correctly. Well, get him on this show. <laughs> you can sit in here and pronounce the names for us. Uh, and then says nothing else about her. Does not say anything about who she is. And does not say, you know, that she's like the current Invicta uh, bantamweight champion. Doesn't tell anybody anything about who she is, even though she hasn't fought in the UFC. So nobody has like any reason why they should know her necessarily just because they're sitting there watching UFC tonight. Here's his chance to tell you about this fight, who it is, why it matters. And uh, he just thinks it's funny. She has a funny name. <laughs> well, you kind of said it all when you said it right there. Uh, Yana Kunitskaya, just so you know, Ben, comes in with a record of 2-2-1 two, two and one in her last five fights. She's probably best known as the fighter who originally beat Tanya Evinger to win the Invicta FC Bantamweight Championship via armbar and then had the fight overturned after Evinger uh, filed an appeal, came back and lost the rematch uh, via second-round rear-naked choke, then went out there and won the uh, vacant Invicta Bantamweight Championship yeah. after Tanya Evinger crossed over to the UFC to lose to Chris Cyborg. Uh, she's 28 years old, and according to Wikipedia, her nickname is Foxy. Okay. It's weird that the Invicta Bantamweight Championship seems like a good path to losing to Chris Cyborg at featherweight in the UFC. That's not what you'd expect. Yeah, one of the things about the creation of this heavyweight division, or featherweight division, uh, was that we we thought there would probably be some crossover, but maybe that it spelled... The end of days of uh, Cyborg Justino beating up bantamweights, you know, inflated bantamweights. And I understand that we were kind of under the gun here. We had to make some stuff happen quickly in order to have a uh, a pay-per-view main event for UFC 222. But at the same time, uh, aside from the fact that the UFC and Chris Cyborg were, seemed to suddenly be able to make a deal on a fight, when you, typically it takes like a year, this time they did it in, in a week or so, uh, Kind of a rewind here with Chris Cyborg fighting Yana Kunitskaya, who is essentially a bantamweight. Seems like, if anything, a flashback to the days of Chris Cyborg uh, beating up 135-pound women at 140 pounds. Yeah, yeah. except this time you give her the extra five pounds, so it's going to be even worse for you. Uh, you want to take a guess what the odds are on this one? Chris Cyborg is minus 800. No. Think more like minus 1,300. Whoa. So, like, this is being forecasted as more lopsided than uh, Shevchenko versus Kashwera, which I believe was minus 1,000. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Well, you know, the interesting thing about that is that maybe someone looked at uh, Shevchenko versus Kashwera and was like, let's do this again. Only at a bigger <laughs> weight class. Yeah, only with a more dangerous person in the role of like, one-sided machine gun. Uh, I guess if you're talking about how hey, isn't it interesting they could suddenly come to a deal with Cyborg? Maybe this is why. They go out there and say, hey, how would you like to make a good payday? And she does make really good paydays every time she fights uh, to just beat up somebody who seems like they maybe have no business being in there with you. Sure, I'll do that. Watch out for the arm bar, Chris Cyborg. Let's talk about Frankie Edgar versus T-City. Uh, a good fight, I think. Tough one for you, man. Featuring Tough one. the old lion, Frankie Edgar, against the up-and-coming young guy, Brian Ortega, who's been on a hot streak here. Uh, on the surface, it strikes me that Frankie Edgar is like a terrible, terrible matchup for Brian Ortega in that he may be uh, wilier and more skilled on the feet and, uh, you know, has those quick takedowns that he can use to get in, put a guy on the ground, and then get out before he gets in trouble. 
At the same time, though, Brian Ortega's submissions up to this point have seemed, I don't know that effortless is the right word, but it, he has certainly given the appearance of kind of being like, oh, I need to win a fight via submission. Okay, I guess I'll do that now. And then he gets it done. So uh, interesting matchup stylistically between Frankie Edgar and Brian Ortega, not to mention uh, both of their standings in the men's 145-pound division. Where are you at with this one? I'm really – I love this matchup just because of what it's going to tell us about who is where and who is not there. Uh, you know, and if you are Brian Ortega and you're a specialist when it comes to how you win fights – there are worse matchups than a guy who's probably going to end up shooting some takedowns on you. I mean, that, that gives you some guillotine opportunities if you can figure it out. And if you can figure it out, that really tells me something. To go out there and to pull off like a, a guillotine or some other kind of choke submission against a, a savvy veteran, as you say, like a guy like Frankie Edgar, especially when we've all seen it enough that you know what to watch out for against Brian Ortega. If you can go out there and do it anyway, then I, I have to start thinking about you seriously as, as somebody who can do this against maybe anybody in the division. It would be huge. It would be unbelievably huge for Brian Ortega to beat Frankie Edgar because, like you said, it would be sort of a uh, planting the flag in the sand moment for Ortega. Um, uh, it also puts Frankie Edgar back in that role of like is frank yeager just going to smash another would-be contender i was just going to say remember ufc 211 the last time frankie edgar uh and one of the ufc's fast rising featherweight prospects got together uh i'm not necessarily sure that yeah rodriguez has recovered uh at least in terms of like his his uh, reputation and standing in the division so it'll be interesting to see uh if frankie edgar is able to just smash brian ortega but at the same time you bring up a pretty interesting point like Takedowns and ground and pound are a pretty big part of, of Frankie Edgar's repertoire, and like that's not what you want to do against a guy who has the sort of uh, otherworldly submission skills as Brian Ortega, because Brian Ortega is out here tapping out dudes that ought know better. You know, they they these are guys that are hard to tap out, guys that see this stuff coming, and and Brian Ortega is, is cutting through them like butter. At the same time, uh, can you tell me the last time Frankie Edgar was submitted in a professional prize fight? Um, off the top of my head, I'm going to say never. Never. Ha <laughs> ha! Never been submitted in a fight. So, something to consider. It sounds like something we'll be saying about, you know, adding to the Brian Ortega highlight reel later. Now, when you put it that way. Like what are you the gonna, MMA gods are going to look down and smile. What are you going to do here? when? Because I know you love you some old man Frankie Edgar. Anybody who's doing it out there at, like, my age. Sitting on. there in the easy chair, peering over the top of his newspaper. Uh, I also know... That you're excited about some T-City. Yeah. What does Chad Dundas do when this fight comes on TV? Do you leave the room? Yeah, I sit on my hands. Is it too tough for you? You know what? I'll take the outcome, whatever it is. We'll pick up the pieces and we'll move on. We'll all meet down in Cubby Sampson's for two-for-one appetizers and drink specials. Okay. When it's all over. Get some jalapeno poppers. That fixes all, heals all wounds. <laughs> right. Hash it out over some jalapeno poppers. Uh, let's do Just Saying Stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here uh, for this week. Ben... You know, during the Fox Sports 1 portion of UFC 221, hearing Jimmy Smith on the mic and then going to commercial and seeing that there were commercials for Dave and Busters, there was a few times when I was like, wait a second, what am I watching here? Which promotion am I watching? But now having seen an entire pay-per-view of the guy's work, I'm just saying, I guess I'm just asking, I'm just saying it needs to be asked. Did Jimmy Smith kick the door down, Ben? and walk in here as the UFC's best color commentator on day one? He really may have. He kind of did. I'm just saying. And you know there's some some commentators out there 
working for the UFC that I would consider my guys. And yet, I don't know, man, it just seemed like a flawless kind of easy transition for Jimmy Smith to come in here, sit down with John Anik and maybe become the premier tandem in MMA broadcasting. Just saying. Meanwhile, if you're Bellator, hey, at least you got Mike Goldberg. Yeah. This week, Chad, I'm just saying earlier on this show, when we tried to imagine the Paramount Network lineup leading into the Bellator event this Friday, you said you you jokingly threw out there that the lead-in would be Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yep. Do you want to know what it actually is? I looked it up. What is it? Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, I was going to say stick around after for Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls, but... Uh, oh, so... That's the one with... That's uh, the worst one. Yeah, that's the one with... Uh, what's his name? Uh, the yeah, kid that guy. Plays Wolfie. His character's name is Wolfie. The guy everybody hates. Yeah. What's that guy's name? What is that guy's name? You better think of it quick because we're about out of time. Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, there it <laughs> is. Drink, everyone. That's how this works, right? Man, I'm just saying, if you're going to lead into a Bellator event with an Indiana Jones movie, which is not a bad idea at all, I mean, you might definitely get me to to stick around on your channel if you're showing an Indiana Jones movie, except for if it's Kingdom of the Crystal fucking Skull. The fuck out of here. I'm just saying. Just saying. But then afterwards, cops. Cops. Cops all night. All night cops marathon. Literally, they will show up cops all night until 4 a.m. when they go to paid programming. That is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at a UFC fight night event we barely even talked about. Also, remember to send us your suggestions for rules for the Pride FC drinking game. Also, feel free to get at us with suggestions for which Pride event that we should uh, do this event around. And then we're going to choose some and throw those up for a poll. So keep an eye out for that. Bellator on Friday night, Saturday night, UFC fight night with Donald Cerrone versus... Sunday night for UFC. Oh, Sunday night. That's right. Austin, Texas, Frank Irwin Center. Donald Cerrone versus Yancey Medeiros and also Ben Folk's spirit animal Derek Lewis taking on Marcin Tybura. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know how I know it was Sunday? I had to get a special dispensation to cut out for a little bit during this fight card so I can go play a hockey game and jump right back in. So you can can cut out to go play hockey, but when your daughter daughter has a birthday party, no, okay. daddy's got to work. Depend, depends on depends on how far out I plan these things. Priorities, exactly.